morning. As we prepare to hear God's word for us this morning, we turn first to Lord's Day 28 of the Heidelberg Catechism. And I would invite you to join me in a responsive reading. I will read the question, and you may repeat or respond with the answer. How does the Holy Supper remind and assure you that you share in Christ's one sacrifice on the cross and in all his benefits? In this way, Christ has commanded me and all believers to eat this broken bread and to drink this cup for the remembrance of him. Let's pry in promises. First, as surely as I see with my eyes the bread of the Lord broken for me and the cup shared with me, so surely his body was offered and broken for me and his blood poured out for me on the cross. Second, as surely as I receive from the hand of the one who serves and eats and tastes with my mouth the bread and cup of the Lord, given me as sure signs of Christ's body and blood, so surely he nourishes and refreshes my soul for eternal life with his crucified body and poured out blood. What does it mean to eat the crucified body of Christ and to drink his poured out blood? It means to accept with a believing heart the entire suffering and death of Christ and thereby to receive forgiveness of sins and eternal life. But it means more. Through the Holy Spirit, who lives both in Christ and in us, we are united more and more to Christ's blessed body. And so, although he is in heaven, and we are on earth, we are flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. And we forever live on and are governed by one spirit, as members of our body are by one soul. Where does Christ promise to nourish and refresh believers with his body and blood, as surely as they eat this broken bread and drink this cup? In the institution of the Lord's Supper, the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took a loaf of bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body that is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For when it often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. This promise is repeated by Paul in these words. Is that we bless. Is it not a sharing in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not a sharing in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we are many are one body, for we all take of the one bread.
The word of the Lord comes to us this morning from the Gospel of Luke, from the 24th chapter, verses 13 to 35. As we prepare to hear the Gospel this morning, let's spend a moment in silent prayer, asking for God's Spirit to come and open our hearts so that we may truly hear the word. A reading from the Gospel of Luke. Now that same day, two of them were going to a village called Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. They were talking with each other about everything that had happened. And as they talked and discussed these things with each other, Jesus himself came up and walked along with them. But they were kept from recognizing him. He asked them, What are you discussing together as you walk along? They stood still, their faces downcast. One of them, named Cleopas, asked him, Are you only a visitor to Jerusalem and do not know the things that have happened there in these days? What things? he asked. About Jesus of Nazareth, they replied. He was a prophet, powerful in word and deed before God and all the people. The chief priests and our rulers handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. What is more, it is the third day since all of this took place. In addition, some of our women amazed us. They went to the tomb early this morning, but didn't find his body. They came and told us that they had seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Then some of our companions went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. He said to them, how foolish you are, and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Did not the Christ have to suffer these things and then enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and and all the prophets, he explained to them what was said in the scriptures concerning himself. As they approached the village to which they were going, Jesus acted as if he was going farther. But they urged him strongly, Stay with us, for it's nearly evening. The day is almost over. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread, gave thanks, broke it, and began to give it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he disappeared from their sight. They asked each other, were our hearts not burning within us while, we talk, while he talked with us on the road and opened the scriptures to us? Then they got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. They found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, it is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told them what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. This is the word of the Lord.
Perception is a funny thing. They say seeing is believing, right? But I don't really know if that gets to the truth of it. It seems that the seeing part is actually really easy. That we can see, we can see something. But that something that we see, I don't know if it always seems like it's the whole picture. As if it's reality itself, the truth. I don't think it's that easy. I've been reading a great book this fall with faculty at Laurier and at UW. It's, called, it's written by a guy named Alan Lightman. Uh, Lightman is a professor at MIT, which is kind of the UW of America. It's called Searching for Stars on an Island in Maine. Uh, Alan Lightman is a theoretical physicist, and he describes himself as having a purely scientific view of the world. Very rational. Very empirical not open to religious flights of fancy. But he opens his book with a story uh, of taking his small motorboat to a little island off the coast of Maine where he spends his summers. He says one night, in the wee hours, he was out on the water, motoring towards his dock. It was a moonless night. And so he said, I took a chance. I turned off the running lights. I turned off the motor, and I laid down in the boat and looked up. Lightman says, after a few minutes, his world dissolved into the star-littered sky. His body disappeared. I found myself falling into infinity, he says. A feeling came over me that I had not experienced before. I, found, I felt an overwhelming connection to the stars, as if I were part of them. And the vast expanse of time seemed compressed to a dot. I felt emerging with something far larger than myself, a grand and eternal unity, a hint of something absolute. What do you think happened there? How did such an ordinary thing like stargazing, looking up at the night sky, turn into something else entirely? Something so powerful, something so mystical. Did he see reality as it is? Or was it just a delusion? Perception is a funny thing. Lightman finishes his story by saying, after a time, I, I sat up and I started the engine again, and I had no idea how long I'd been laying there looking up. I don't know how long these two disciples have been walking on the road to Emmaus when Luke picks up the story. Luke tells us it was a journey of seven miles, which means it was a long enough walk for the dust to build up between their toes, long enough for the afternoon sun to make a bead of sweat roll from their forehead down to their lips, long enough for a rumble of hunger to move across their belly, long enough, too, to push past the small talk to push into the heavy stuff, to turn over the news about Jesus of Nazareth, to talk about that cross and, and that crown of thorns and, and that darkness in the mid-afternoon. Their faces were downcast, Luke tells us. But suddenly they weren't alone. Out of nowhere, this man joins them, and he, and he set upon them really quickly. 
but he's not out of breath. In fact, for someone who must have been walking the same dusty, hot road, he looks pretty refreshed. The stranger asks Cleopas, what are you two talking about so intently? And and Cleopas kind of lets it all spill out. Cleopas tells Jesus all about Jesus. Sometimes I wonder if we do that too. That we come here to worship Jesus, uh, that we gather with friends and family and and for for prayer and for Bible study, and and sometimes what ends up happening is that we kind of want to tell Jesus about Jesus, about who we think Jesus should be, uh, how he could fit our idea of of what a Savior does. I think church is kind of like that sometimes. I actually think that church is a lot like this passage in Luke. Or that this passage in Luke is actually a lot like church. Think about the structure here. If we pull back from this intimate conversation a little bit. Some disciples meet on their journey. Jesus shows up. Wherever two or three are gathered, right? And then the word is opened. The scriptures are expounded and taught. And then after the scripture reading... There's the breaking of the bread. And the disciples are fed. And once they're fed, once Jesus has become part of them, they're sent on their way to tell the good news. That's the classic Christian pattern of worship, right? Gathering, word, meal, sending. Neat, eh? But I actually think it's more than just neat. More than just a clever way of seeing the church's worship tucked into this powerful story in the Gospel of Luke. Luke also captures something deeply human. Something about the things that we bring to worship when we come here on Sunday mornings. Cleopas' words, right in the middle of the passage, stuck out to me this week as I was reading it over and over. But we had hoped But we had hoped. But we had hoped. One preacher I'm fond of says that these are among the most realistic and heartbreaking words in all of Scripture. So much is is contained in those four words. They they speak of a future that was not to be, a a dream that created such energy and enthusiasm but, but didn't materialize, a promise that created faith that proved to be false. spoke of a future that was now closed off and irrelevant and dead. And there are a few things more tragic than that. But we had hoped. We had hoped. I don't think those are words that are just spoken by these two disciples on the road to Emmaus. I think they're on the lips of so many of us gathered here this morning, too. Some of us have come here for the promise of theological reflection, to do some singing, to see some friends. But for a lot of us, too, there's a sense of, we had hoped. We come with burning hearts like those disciples on the road to Emmaus, but we come with broken hearts, too. And so while the praise band plays and the preacher preaches, we think of missed promotions and layoffs. We think about our bank statements. We wrestle with depression and anxiety and loneliness. 
We think about what we see in the mirror and we don't like it. We think about some of the darkness in our heart that we'd love to sweep under the rug, but that keeps creeping out and gnawing at us. Those hurtful things that we've said. The hurtful things that we've heard. We think of those broken promises, those busted up relationships, abuse and infidelity and addiction. Is this the kind of place that can reckon with that? Not because I think that wallowing in darkness is, is the way to go. I think that cynicism and despair are, are, aren't, aren't good habits to let into your heart. But I do wonder if we have a tendency to move too quickly past the broken hearts on the road to Emmaus. We're a pain-averse culture. We're a death-denying culture. And sometimes it leads us to avoidance, to, to put on a power of positive thinking kind of vibe. We rush, we run far too quickly. Well, in our hearts, we're still on that road to Emmaus, thinking we had hoped, we had hoped, we had hoped. But of course, the two disciples don't stay on the road to Emmaus. They reach Emmaus. They reach their destination, and at their destination is a table. And on that table is a loaf of bread. And with that bread, the word made flesh reveals the fullness of his presence. The central truth of the universe is not darkness, despair, and dashed hopes. Nor is it the power of positive thinking or, or silver linings or always look on the bright side of life. The central truth of the universe is that the body and blood of the one who was crucified has become for us the food of eternal life. Pain and loneliness, sin and death, they're real. They're real. But they have been met on the road by our Lord and they have been overcome by him. And in the place of all the bitter fruit that life can bring us, he offers us his body, his blood, and the transfiguration of all that sorrow. That's the gospel for brokenhearted people. That life brings bitter fruit, but that we eat the bread of life. I love the way our catechism emphasizes how lavish this gift is, of how extravagant such a simple thing, a piece of bread, some juice from a crushed grape, how extravagant that actually is. Sometimes I wonder if we come to the table with such a thin understanding of what that little piece of bread and what that small cup are all about, that we think that they're just this small ritual, a little reminder that Jesus died for our sins and his blood washes us clean. And you know, that, that's true. That is the gospel, or at least part of it. But the catechism said there's even more. The catechism tells us that in, in this table, we share not only in Jesus' sacrifice, but that we share in all his gifts. That the gospel is huge. 
And at this little table, in that little piece of bread, in that small sip, we are promised nourishment and refreshment, which is vital for people who are trucking along the road to Emmaus or wherever you're headed. We're promised eternal life, which is a vital thing in a world where everything seems disposable and temporary. We are promised that we are made part of something far bigger than just ourselves, united more and more to his sacred body, which is a vital thing in a world of loneliness and isolation. We are promised so much more. But maybe you're here this morning and you've only been half listening because you've got these doubts nagging at you, is chipping away at you. And maybe this whole Christianity thing seems so far-fetched. And you're really struggling with the big questions that don't seem to have any clear answers. Our Lord says, come to this table. Come and meet the God who fills you up in the midst of the mystery and the yearning. Come meet the God who wants to fill you with good things, even if you don't have all the answers. Or maybe you're here this morning and you've only been half listening because you've been thinking about that kid that you and your buddies picked on at school this week. You know, the awkward kid who's like the butt of everyone's jokes. And you saw him cry. And you feel awful about that. But your buddies still think it's funny. And now you have that sinking feeling in your stomach every time you think about it. Come to this table. Come and meet the God who offers forgiveness through the body and blood of his son, Jesus Christ. Come and be filled with the food of reconciliation. Or maybe you're here this morning and you're only half listening because you're feeling intensely alone. There are so many people around you. And they all seem to have so many friends. But you just can't seem to make it click with all. You feel like you're standing against the gym wall while everyone else is having a blast dancing in the middle. Come to this table. Come and know that those who take part of this feast become one body. For they all eat the same loaf. And they all share the same cup. You are more and more united to Christ's blessed body. Or maybe you're here and you're only half listening because this morning you looked in the mirror and you started to hear the rumble of those jungle drums that tells you that you're ugly, that your body isn't lovable. So you turn off the lights and you throw on a few layers of baggy clothes and you hope that people really don't notice you or laugh behind your back. Come to this table then. Know that your God loves you so much that he wants to meet you in body and in soul to nourish you and know you from the inside out. Know that your body is his temple and that his light shines through you even if you can't see it when you look in the mirror in the morning. Or maybe you've been here this morning only half listening because you're thinking about scarcity. Things aren't going well at work. You've been arguing about money at home and it's starting to take its toll. Come to this table. Discover a feast unlike any other feast in the world. 
This is the only feast that the more people come to it, the more food there is. The only feast that never runs out because the bread of life never runs out. There is no scarcity at the table of our Lord. Or maybe you're here only half listening because someone in your family got a scary diagnosis. Someone you love is sick, is in the hospital, is not long for this world. Come to this table. Come meet the God who promises abundant, everlasting, eternal life. Meet Jesus, the King that death could not contain. And know that me, you, all of us, whether sick or healthy, are held firmly in the grip of his hand. Come to this table. I have to confess I feel a bit weird now because I've invited you to this table and I'm looking down at it now and there's nothing on it. Well, there's some dishes, but they're empty. An invitation to a table with nothing on the table, it's kind of like watching the Food Network and seeing some world-class chef make a delicious dish and realizing, oh, it's there on the screen. Not for me. And it makes me wonder, why are we so stingy with this meal? If it is indeed the sign and seal of the promises of God, of all of his gifts, shouldn't we want it all the time? I know I need that seal because there is so much noise in my life, so much competition for my loyalty, that I need that seal. And I need that sign because I'm prone to wander off the road to Emmaus and just chart my own path. I need that sign to point me the right direction. If the breaking of the bread is the way that Jesus reveals the fullness of his presence to us, isn't it strange that we skip over it so often? If Christian worship is about gathering, opening the scriptures, breaking the bread, and being sent, why do we miss the breaking of the bread part most of the time? Do you miss it? Do you miss it? I'm guessing most of us actually know the feeling of a, of a missed meal, that sort of pit of hunger that you feel if you skip breakfast because you were too busy or too stressed or whatever. But you also know how good it is to have that pit filled, to have that hunger satisfied. We come to church with broken hearts. We come to church with burning hearts. Do we come with hungry hearts? St. Bruce Springsteen says, everybody's got a hungry heart. One of my favorite theologians. <laughs> and I think he's right about that, but sometimes I think we cover that up, and we come and we think, ah, it's more about what you know in your head. It's more about what you hear. It's more about what you think. It's not about that pit of hunger, of thirsting like a deer pants for streams of water. When I'm talking with students about this meal and how, how powerful this table is, I always tell the story of Sarah Miles. I like to say that Sarah Miles is a friend of mine, but I've only read her book and I've never met her. But I read her book and I think that we'd really get along. She has a book called Take This Bread. Sarah Miles lives in California and she runs one of the largest food pantries uh, in the state out of a church there in San Francisco. She's a Christian. 
but she wasn't always a Christian. She describes her younger self as this blue state secular intellectual with a habit of skepticism. She grew up rather indifferent. In fact, her mom like, really couldn't stand Christianity. But growing up, one thing that she wasn't indifferent to was food. She spent her early adulthood doing two kinds of work, working as a restaurant cook and as a journalist in Central America in the middle of war zones. In the restaurant business, Sarah learned about the significance of, of food as cuisine, uh, as well-crafted and properly seasoned and as tradition-honoring. In her work as a war reporter, she learned about food as a justice issue. That it wasn't a matter of fancy cuisine there, but it was a matter of seeing hunger, seeing starvation, and seeing how important, how life-giving even the simplest meal could be. As she entered adulthood, she left that work behind and moved to California. And one winter morning, she went for a walk, and she strolled into St. Gregory of Nyssa's Anglican Church in San Francisco. She had no idea why she walked in the door. She had no earthly reason to be there. She'd never said the Lord's Prayer, never heard a gospel reading, and she wasn't interested in becoming, quote, a religious nut. But the building was beautiful, and it beckoned to her, and so she entered and found a seat. She was trying not to catch anyone's eye. She said she stood and sang and then sat and then sang and then stood up and sang some more, and it was all really peaceful and kind of interesting. And then everyone got up and gathered around a table at the center of the sanctuary. They sang some more, and someone put a piece of fresh, crumbly bread in her hands and said, this is the body of Christ. And then someone handed her a goblet of sweet wine and said, this is the blood of Christ. And then something outrageous and terrifying happened. Jesus happened. To this day, Sarah can't explain her first communion. On one level, she knew what was happening. Something very ordinary, just bread, sip of wine. But on another, she knew something else was happening. That God, the Spirit, Jesus Christ was real, was there. She just said it short-circuited her ability to do anything but cry. She couldn't reconcile that experience with anything she knew, any information she had in her head, anything she'd been told, but it wouldn't go away. For some reason, she wanted that bread again and again. She wanted it all the next day, all the next week. The week after that, it was a sensation as urgent as physical hunger, and it pulled her back to that table. She writes that her background as a cook, as a reporter working alongside starving people, made her responsive to the Lord's Supper because she knew something about the power of hunger. Knowing something deep about the satisfaction of good food. And it told her that God could be found in her experience. That God could be sensed in her body. It could be tasted in food. And that meant that her body was connected, literally, mysteriously, to all the other bodies around that table, sharing the same loaf and the same cup. And it told her that she was loved beyond reason. For Sarah, Christianity wasn't an, an argument that she could win or a, a thesis that she could articulate. It was a mystery that she was finally willing to swallow. 
Sometimes I think that we're the kind of people who like to live in our head. I think this is especially true of Christian Reformed people. And so we read the scriptures and we think, yeah, we got the right idea. We, we, we know what matters, and so we're good. Sometimes I also think that we're the kind of people who are prone to filling our stomachs with all the junk food that our culture offers us. But that we know deep down that it doesn't satisfy. Sometimes I think we're the kind of people who struggle to see the glory that is hidden in this simple meal on this ordinary table. And we find ourselves doubting that anything at all happens when we come to it. Perception is a funny thing. Half the Bible seems to be about people not seeing God when they should be seeing God. And the other half seems to be about God hiding in stuff. Hiding in cloud, hiding in fog on a mountain, hiding in a burning bush. But then at that one marvelous instant, around one ordinary table in some little town, Jesus, the risen Lord, reveals himself to his disciples in the breaking of bread. It's no longer hidden. That meal, 20 centuries ago, that meal is the same meal that we share with each other. Jesus still makes himself known in that bread, just like he did with his disciples, just like he did with Sarah Miles, just like he does with us. May we come to this table and know how mouth-watering faith can be. May we find assurance for our deepest hungers and our deepest hopes. May they be satisfied there. May we see the risen Lord bearing all his gifts for all his people. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, amen. Let's pray together. Our generous God, you come to us bearing such incredible gifts, contained in such simple things. And we confess that we can be hard of seeing sometimes, that we don't always perceive it. Keep calling us back to your table. Keep nourishing and replenishing our lives. Keep comforting us, knowing that your blood washes us clean, that you make us part of something much bigger than ourselves, and that you promise eternal life to all the people around the table. In the name of Christ our God, we pray.